we're going through this tremendous energy transition where it's not just about can we find more energy, but can we completely revamp our energy system? So go away from using fossil fuels, which have been the basis of our energy system for 150, 200 years, I don't know the number, but a long time, and switch over to low carbon in a way that, in a certain sense, feels like trying to change the the engines on a jet plane in the middle of the flight. So how are we going to do all these things? How are we going to have enough energy, which was the problem of the 2000s, but have enough of the environmentally responsible energy that we want and need in order to meet the challenges that climate change presents? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Hello, David. Thank you very much for joining us today on Smarter Markets. It's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Susan. It's really good to talk with you again. Let's get started. And, you know, I always like to just have the guests share a little bit about their background. And I know you have an extensive background in energy markets, but of course, some of our listeners um, will will be interested to hear about that. So can you just tell me a little bit about your background and, and how it is that you landed in energy and natural gas and LNG? You know, I came into the commodities markets and the energy markets in particular from being an economist by training. So I got started, was fortunate enough to work in commodities at Goldman Sachs back in the 2000s. So I joined in 2001 with the commodity research team, working with Steve Strongen and Jeff Curry. And, you know, looking back, when you do things earlier in your career, you don't always recognize what a terrific time it was. But to be an economist in the commodity markets, in the energy markets in the 2000s, was just a really incredible time in terms of you know, what the markets were going through, the growth of the business itself, you know, kind of living through, you know, a generational increase in commodity prices, need for investment, need for risk management, and being able to be in all parts of that business. And so it was a really wonderful time. And to a certain extent, what we're going through now with the energy transition and globalization of the natural gas markets, it's kind of taking me back to those early days in a way. Although, of course, I suppose those early days were, uh, at least from the U.S. perspective, a bit different. So in the 2000s, the U.S. was going to be a major natural gas importer. Right. Remember those days when you know we were worried about running out of oil, running out of natural gas? And of course, it was never really about running out of oil or running out of natural gas. It was you know, simply the underinvestment. The infrastructure hadn't been built. And, you know, it became a question of where are we going to find the oil we need? Where are we going to find the gas we need? And at one point it was, oh, the U.S. is going to have to import gas from overseas. We need LNG import terminals, not export terminals. And so it was amazing to see that investment occurring. And then, of course, those terminals getting turned into the export terminals as the rising prices incentivize so much investment in new technologies and this thing called shale <laughs> that no one really understood, but was of great interest to, you know, engineers and other technology people, you know, proved out. And all of a sudden, the U.S. was, you know, floating in natural gas and able to export it overseas. So very different. And as you mentioned, you know, fun times and I started, you know, really focused on natural gas and LNG in the sort of 
2000 and maybe eight phase. So the U.S. had built a number of import terminals and everyone was asking, are we going to use these import terminals? And then shale gas and fracking. Of course, the issue, the environmental issues of fracking really garnered a, a lot of attention. And uh, it's interesting, I, you know, I guess to see that, right? It was exciting, exciting times. So would you say now is, now that the U.S. has shifted, you know, those import terminals have been converted now to export terminals. So would you say today is just as exciting as it was, or is it uh, different? Oh, I think, uh, I think more so in a way where I remember when I first really got involved doing research in some of the, the natural gas markets outside the U.S., I was looking at natural gas in Europe, natural gas in Asia. And unlike the oil market, which was a global market, you know, oil could move anywhere, you had to compete for it, you know, too much demand in China meant too little supply in Houston, the gas markets were very regional. You know, you had the U.S. natural gas market that was you know, an economist vision of a perfectly competitive market, lots of producers, lots of consumers. You had Asia where people were just buying LNG and natural gas off these long-term oil index contracts. So no real gas price in Asia. And then this interesting hybrid in Europe where you had natural gas markets in the UK, but also, you know, this kind of odd oil indexed history of pricing on the continent, but very regional markets. And so when we fast forward to today, you know, one of the most fascinating things for me is you're seeing this creation of a global natural gas market. You know, like we have a global oil market, now we're going to have a global natural gas market. And before, you know, back in the 2000s, these regional gas markets were connected by their connection to the oil market, so very indirectly. And now with LNG, the ability to put, you know, gas, liquefy it, put it on a cargo ship and send it to different parts of the world, we're seeing this real global gas market with direct ties. So that's fascinating. And at the same time that we're seeing a globalizing natural gas market, we're going through this tremendous energy transition where it's not just about can we find more energy, but can we completely revamp our energy system? So go away from using fossil fuels, which have been the basis of our energy system for 150, 200 years, I don't know the number, but a long time, and switch over to low carbon in a way that, in a certain sense, feels like trying to change the the engines on a jet plane in the middle of the flight. So how are we going to do all these things? How are we going to have enough energy, which was the problem of the 2000s, but have enough of the environmentally responsible energy that we want and need in order to meet the challenges that climate change presents? Well, I think that's a great point. And Daniel Jurgen was on the show earlier and made that point that this energy transition that we're all focused on and the net zero goals, the reality is that it's going to be a, a much longer transition than maybe people expect, right? It doesn't, uh, you don't turn off energy systems on a dime. So I guess with that in mind, you know, I want to ask you about sort of the energy crisis that we've seen in Europe and Asia this year with with soaring prices. And, you know, what does that mean to you in terms of the energy transition and in particular the role of natural gas and LNG? You know, is there still a really strong role for natural gas and LNG and serving as a basis of energy as the transition unfolds? Well, there really is. And I think what we're seeing in Europe and Asia right now really underscores that point. So I think as Daniel discussed, 
part of what we're seeing in Europe and Asia, you know, it is the first energy crisis of the energy transition. You know, it's the first global natural gas shock that we're experiencing. And it, it's to me, it's very much, you know, this is a, a taste of things that are likely to come. And to a certain extent, you know, I think of what's happening in Europe and Asia now a little bit like whenever there's a hurricane or an extreme weather event or a flood and people say, oh, that's climate change. And others say, no, it's, you can't say it's climate change. It's these five things happen that led to it. And I think what's happening in Europe is somewhat similar. It's difficult to say that, oh, it's only because of some of the moves we're making in the energy transition. But as we put more emphasis on environmentally responsible energy, at the expense of reliable energy, I think we can be confident that we're going to have more episodes like this, that what we're seeing is an energy system that's becoming more vulnerable. And an energy system that's more vulnerable is going to be more prone to some of those shocks. And in terms of the role of LNG and gas in this, you know, I think what it shows is that there's a bigger role, that when you look at where the carbon's coming from, that we need to deal with part of the greenhouse gases to deal with climate change, much of it's still coming from coal. I think it's quite surprising because we tend to think of coal as something a little bit from a, a longer period ago, but there's more carbon emissions today globally from coal than from oil or from gas. It's still the leading contributor to the CO2 we're putting into the atmosphere. And when you're looking at where that's coming from, it's still a lot of the growth is coming from China, from the developing world. So we have a coal problem that we need to deal with. And part of dealing with that is getting less coal being used for power generation and potentially more natural gas. You know, natural gas emits less than half the carbon dioxide that coal does when used for power generation. So even just making a switch from coal to gas is a big deal. And then, of course, as you have solar, as you have wind, as you have more renewables, those aren't reliable. You know, the, if the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, you don't have power. So natural gas is a complement that lets you use more solar, more renewable in the grid, make it more environmentally responsible, but also keep it reliable. So I still think we have a big, a big role for natural gas. And because where much of the coal is being used is in China, is in Asia, there's a big role for LNG. Because when you look at how resources are distributed around the world, we talked about how there's so much gas in the US right now, but China from a resource perspective tends to be quite coal rich and oil and gas poor. So part of getting coal out of the grid in China and helping China move to a more environmentally responsible, low carbon energy system will involve more natural gas getting to China. And for that, you're going to need LNG. And you mentioned China, but also India also has very ambitious natural gas plans going forward. And I think I was in, the, in Asia years ago, and one of the energy ministers in Asia said, you know, natural gas isn't, it's not perfect, right? There's no perfect solution but the energy, you know, the natural gas and the LNG industry has in the past done a pretty good role of making a strong case for natural gas, which is, you know, it's affordable. We're now seeing some price pushback on that point. But historically, it's, you know, affordable, abundant and cleaner burning than coal. So it may not be the perfect solution, but it's a pretty good solution that we, we shouldn't overlook, especially as we're embarking on this energy transition, which, as Daniel Jurgen said, you know, we're still on the path, right? And it's probably going to be a pretty <laughs> long path. 
Right. We're not at the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end or any of those. And I think you're right. Like we can't let the, in trying to tackle a problem of this magnitude, you obviously can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And if you think about these transitions, is the transition going to take 30 years? Like as an optimistic case, do we get this done by 2050? One thing that moving to natural gas and, you know, those types of fossil fuels means is it's also extending the runway to make changes. So, you know, one thing we're trying to do as well is to buy time to make this transition possible. And so that means that, you know, maybe in your ideal world, you know, depending on on your point of view, you'd say, well, we don't want to be using fossil fuels forever. Yes, but if they can make a transition that might take 100 years, take 50 years, maybe that's better. And, you know, what we're also going to have to do is find ways to take carbon out of the air so that we don't have to be as restrictive on emitting carbon in the future as some of these pathways, you know, might lay out. I think it's a great point that we are trying to buy time. And I suppose one reason we're trying to buy time is to let new technologies develop and technologies don't develop overnight. Right. Sometimes it seems that they do. But when you look at the history, so, you know, shale gas was 10 plus years in the making. It seemed like it came on overnight, but it really didn't. Daniel Jurgen mentioned the electric vehicles, the first conversation that Elon Musk had, you know, in 2003. Seems like Tesla came on overnight, but it really didn't. So what is your sort of thoughts on what, what technologies are out there that might help the transition and how far off are we on some of them? When I go back and think about, you know, the experience in the 2000s and what the energy market was doing then, it it resonates back with me now in that in hindsight, everything seems like, oh, well, that was perfectly predictable. Right, right, right. <laughs> and if you went back to that point in time, which, you know, my experience was oil had always been $25 a barrel. We asked anybody, what's oil going to cost in five years, $25 a barrel. Why are you even thinking about it? Because that was, you know, where you could bring new projects on. And as you began to realize, okay, it's not 25 anymore. What's the price going to be? And the market started searching for that price. And so I remember at the time, you know, you do research, you talk to different technologists, scientists, engineers, and it'd be like, well, you know, around $35, there's this thing they're doing up in Western Canada, uh, you know, where they're kind of like mining oil. And you're like, huh, that's interesting. And, you know, it's okay. <laughs> and then, you know, or some biofuels, you know, maybe we could create fuel ethanol or you can create biodiesel, you know, maybe that's 30, maybe yeah, that's probably more like $40 a barrel. But the thing is, you never know. And the big thing is, it's not just about the price at which it can work at a very small scale in the laboratory. It's about where can it scale up and you can do it in size to really make a dent. And so while it's you know somewhat entertaining to sit back and speculate about the new technologies and you can think about what's out there now, you know, there's very old scalable technology like planting trees and reforestation to capture carbon and you know hold it in wood and biomass uh, that feels pretty proven <laughs> um, those technologies are there and then there's more that's on the drawing board you know there's being able to capture carbon out of the air and sequester it underground being able to you know have it absorbed into cement absorbed into you know calcium carbonates and you know basically put back in mineral form 
And with all those technologies, they're scientifically, you know, potentially viable, but we don't know when they become economically viable. And so one of the things with technology, I think, is always there's the role of technology and then there's the role of markets. And Steve Strong and always used to tell me at uh, Goldman, he'd say, well, you know, people don't do things because they need to be done. They do them because the price motivates them. <laughs> and that's one of the issues we have now is, you know, like we don't really have a price, a global gas price, we don't have a carbon price. And when there's a lot of conversation around the carbon price, I feel like it often comes from the avenue of a carbon tax. And yeah, I mean, a price can restrict demand. A price can also motivate supply. And I think over the long term, that's going to be the more important part. If we can get a viable price for carbon out there, it's not just about it getting people to use more efficiently, but it's about motivating people being able to drive investment to some of these new technologies, and we'll see which ones work out. You know, which which of those lunch counter conversations that happened probably 10 years ago that we might not know about yet, you know, an engineer and a, an entrepreneur can get together and say, well, yeah, with seeing this price in the market, you know, we can get financing from investors and we can start to really see if we can scale this thing up. And so I think there's the technology, there's also having the market price, that unlocks that investment capital to see which of these technologies will prove out. So Europe does have a price on on carbon. The U.S. doesn't. It's something that gets discussed. I don't know how much traction it's getting now. And Asia doesn't for the most part either. I mean, do you think there could be a global price on carbon? Or are you just thinking major markets might need to price in carbon? Well, I think what we're seeing is, you know, you have this growth in the voluntary carbon markets. So as you said, you have these regional, you know, what are called compliance markets, similar to the old cap and trade regimes that helped us deal with acid rain and sulfur dioxide. But we haven't seen that be achieved on a global scale. And of course, with greenhouse gas and carbon, it's a global issue. It's not a local issue. What we are seeing, which is quite fascinating, is the growth of voluntary markets. So companies being put under pressure by their investors, by their employees, by their customers, by their stakeholders, by activists to say, we want you to reduce your carbon footprint. We want you to move towards net zero. And because these companies are under that pressure, you see a tremendous amount of them making pledges and saying, we're going to move in this direction. And in order to move in that direction, there's a piece of it that they can do on their own and try to be more efficient, try to reduce their footprint that way. But for many, they're going to need to have carbon offsets. They're going to need to be able to say, well, I can't get to net zero on my own. I'm going to do the best I can, but maybe I can invest in some of these technologies to help take the carbon out of the atmosphere that my core business operations are putting into. And so I think that's where you'll start to see the evolution of the carbon market and the carbon price, and that's where you're beginning to see it now. Now, it's fascinating in that, much like there's not a global reference price for natural gas, there's not a global reference price for carbon at this point. And there's many different quality grades. There's many different forms. Is it a nature-based credit? Is it a, you know more technology-based? Is it short-term storage? Is it long-term storage where you're putting it back down in the ground? There's very many different dimensions to it. And I think given time, the market will sort it out in terms of, okay, what are we going to take as the reference price? 
And then how are we going to think about how these other qualities should trade relative to that benchmark? It's very similar to what we see across the commodity markets. You know, people think of the oil price. You pick up the paper or hear on the news, oh, oil's at 75 or, you know, whatever number. And that's fine. But if you're in the oil market, there's no oil price. <laughs> you know, there's a price for WTI in Cushing. There's a price for Brent in the North Sea. There's a price for heavy sour oil. There's a price for light sweet crude oil. But the market's able to handle all that trading, adjust prices for those different qualities. And I think you'll see the same market evolution on the carbon side as well. So Morgan Stanley issued a report on LNG and the energy transition. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is they did a little chart tracking all of the LNG carbon uh, neutral cargoes. And what I found interesting is I think almost every one of those cargoes was tied to the offset was a nature-based offset. And so I'm wondering if you think that will be a tr- well, it's already a trend, just looking at this Morgan Stanley chart, right? The industry is already moving in that direction. And then there's a couple of outliers. Uh, Next Decade is planning a carbon capture project. But most people seem to be using LNG carbon neutral cargos, and the offset is a nature-based offset. Um, so I'm wondering what your views on that, if you think that's what we're going to really see for the LNG industry. Right. Well, that's definitely reflective of what we're seeing at the moment. That, you know, right now, most of the carbon offsets are nature-based. And I think that's really because they're the most verifiable, they're the most traceable. Now, will the market stay there? We don't think so. We think the evolution of the market over time will be that as you establish a carbon price and you start to motivate investment flows into some of these new technologies, some of these, you know, say non-nature-based ways of capturing and storing carbon, as those research and development dollars flow, and we see which of those technology scales for capture, sequestration, and removal, that you'll start to see, you know, that become more and more of the available offsets. So I think there is a natural growth. Once again, that requires a price to allow that development to happen. But I think much like in real estate, it's location, location, location. In carbon offsets, it's going to be quality, quality, quality. When you look at what's driving people to want to be in these carbon offset markets, it's because they've made pledges to stakeholders to say, we're taking this seriously and we're moving on it. And those stakeholders are going to be the ultimate arbiters of whether they're meeting that commitment or not. And so they want to have quality, they want to have verifiable, they want to have traceable. And so I think that comes first. And then as the market grows, we'll see some of these other technologies come in. But right now, you know, you can find the quality in the nature-based. Right. Okay. So I, I like how you describe that, you know, that that's what we're seeing now. That's what industry has gravitated, but the market always will dictate over time, right? So that's the market now, but it may not necessarily be the market in five, 10 years as other technologies scale up. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you um, to go back to something that you know we're, we're just alluding to in terms of financing. Of course, there's a number of projects uh, around the world all hoping to get financing. Where do you think the financing of energy projects is going? We, we've seen record high prices, but new supply isn't really coming on on the market like, like it has in the past. So is this time different or is it just a matter of time before we see a, a supply response? Well, I think one thing you see with investors is they dislike uncertainty. And when you have 
uncertainty over regulation. You know, will we be allowed to produce fossil fuels in 20, 30 years? Will there be a large tax on what we're doing in 10 years? You know, when you look at the International Energy Agency came out with their Path to 2050 report, and, you know, one of their projections is to meet the net zero requirements, you're going to need something like coal production to fall by about 95%, oil production to fall 75%, gas production to fall 55%. It's anticipating that we use less of everything. <laughs> we've never used less of anything. You know, uh, we haven't always added, but we've always, you know, kept using. So if you're an oil company, a coal company, a gas company, you're going to think hard before you commit those investment dollars in the current atmosphere. Now, you know, I think as you see some clarity come out of the regulatory side, as you see a development on the carbon market side, then you can start to get some clarity on, okay, how does this all net out? And you'll see investment flow. You know, there are still many companies that are not making these types of, you know, net zero pledges. So there's going to be room, there's going to be a need for energy in the developing markets. And so I think you'll ultimately see that investment occur, but you are putting more uncertainty into the equation. And I think when you see that, what you typically see is, you know, companies moving a little bit more slowly. And Daniel Jurgen mentioned sort of a, a new mindset of capital discipline and returning, uh, you know, investment to shareholders. And we seem to be in that mode at the moment in terms of, you know, major oil and gas companies. And then he mentioned, you know, there's always uh, the smaller producers that might bring on production a little bit faster because they have, have less concerns. So do you think it's just a timing issue? Are we in this sort of energy crisis mode, you know, for a while? Are you hearing much from the policy standpoint from, you know, leaders in Washington? You know, we've heard about things on the supply chain, right? President Biden sort of said he's going to send out the National Guard to unload cargoes in, in L.A., I don't know if that was done, <laughs> but you know, are you seeing much of a policy response this time, or um, so is it just a matter of time? I guess I'm I'm wondering. You know, it's interesting. There's always a saying that the cure for high prices is high prices, but of course that requires that there's a response to those high prices. That there's the investment. That there's a little bit of a you know potentially a regulatory easing. So I'm a big believer that you ultimately get these adjustments. Now, does that come from the policy side? I think that's the bigger question. You know, we're getting back to, you know, thinking about what's happening in Europe and Asia right now. The thing I find fascinating is there, there tend to be two conversations. There tends to be the conversation of climate change is an existential threat. We need to do something about it. We need to move quickly. And then there's the people need to be able to heat their homes. We can't destroy the economy. We need cheap, reliable energy. And to me, those two conversations, especially among policymakers, often seem on different tracks. And when you look at what's happened in Europe and Asia right now, you know what you've seen is pushing ahead on the climate agenda. But the moment that creates potentially, an, you know, a gas price spike, higher energy prices, then there's you know an easing back. So you turn the coal plants back on in the UK. So I think what's needed is a recognition that we've got two big problems we're wrestling with. We've got the climate change problem, and we've got that people need reliable energy. And you need to acknowledge the two. 
and start to come up with some pragmatic solutions, recognizing that both of those things are really important, that we need to deal with the effects that our carbon emissions are having on the climate, and we need to make sure that there's safe, reliable, environmentally responsible energy available for people because that's what the world lives on. <laughs> so, you know, I think there needs to be a moment where we're able to hold those two ideas in our heads at the same time and start making policies to address them both in a pragmatic way. Right. Because certainly, it, it you know, if we all freeze to death in our homes because we run out of natural gas, I suppose that might benefit the climate, but, you know, we won't be around to see it. <laughs> we won't be around to enjoy it. That's for sure. And I think there's so, there's so much that can be done. You know, like we talked about technology, we talked about markets. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of room for optimism. You know, I like to think there's like optimism born of experience. Like we've encountered these big problems before. You know, I think about back when I was a kid, you know, you were having the green revolution. So in the 50s and 60s, it was, we can't feed all the people in the world. You know, what are we going to do? It's going to be mass starvation. And then there was a tremendous technological improvement in the way we could grow and distribute food. Oh, okay. That existential threat is dealt with. You get into the 80s and 90s, there's acid rain, you know, photos of statues, <laughs> you know, basically melting across Europe, and we dealt with it. And now people don't talk about acid rain anymore. In the 2000s, you know, oh my God, you know, people are afraid we're running out of oil. And, you know, shale came along, the investment occurred, other fuels, new technologies, more efficiencies, and we're not worried about running out of oil. In fact, we're not worried about how much oil's under the ground. We're worried about how much room we have for all the emissions we create by burning fossil fuels that we can have in the air. We've been through these types of big challenges before, maybe not one on this scale, but with the right technology and the right markets, you know, we can get through it. You know, we've recently had the COP26 meetings. And it got me thinking a lot, of, you know, as an economist, I go back to Hayek, you know, and start thinking about, well, if we're going to solve these problems so it's not permanent, you know, what do we need? We need technology and we need markets. And, you know, markets are about how do you get people motivated? <laughs> you know, so you go back to, you know, Adam Smith and he's, well, one of the beautiful things about a market is you can motivate people to do what's in the common good as they pursue what's in their own self-interest. So, great. And then if you go to Hayek, you know, I think what he realized was that, you know, one of the things that markets do is they help to coordinate our responses to these big changes, that there's societies always having to adapt to big changes and big problems. And a market, you know, you can respond to that by having government action and saying, well, we're going to defer, we're going to defer to the experts, to the people at the top of the pyramid and they're going to tell us what to do, or you can have a more decentralized approach. And I think one of the beautiful things you know, that he realized about markets was instead of trying to push all the information up and all, have all the decisions trickle down, markets allow you to capture all the information that's out there in that you know, there's scientific knowledge, there's also the, every person's knowledge of their own circumstances. And what you can do is you can capture that. So I'm sure there's lots of people out there, you know, who have like, oh, I could 
insulate my house. I could use less energy that way. There's somebody who's just had an interesting conversation over lunch about a new technology for carbon capture. <laughs> you know, there's lots of things out there that we'll never know. But once you get prices, once you get organization, then all of a sudden, all those people are able to apply the knowledge they have to the common problem. And, you know, that's more likely to be our path out than a big government mandate. Right. Because historically, it always has been. I mean, you know, if you go back to shale gas, you know, the, the market responded to high prices by, by figuring out how to extract shale gas, which we knew was there for decades, right? When you talk to engineers, engineers are like, we knew that shale gas was in the, in the rock, just it wasn't economical to squeeze it out of the rock. And you alluded to the oil sands in Canada. Same idea, right? People knew that oil was there in the oil sands. It just didn't economically make sense. When oil was $25 a barrel, it didn't make economic sense to get it out of the sand or get the gas out of the rock. So with the right price signals, a lot more supply can come on, essentially. Absolutely. And I think hopefully five, 10 years, we'll look back and the technological path will seem as obvious as the switch to shale and oil sands and you know biofuel and renewables looks to us now looking back, you know, into the 2000s. Right. Because there is, you know, I guess going back to sort of the energy transition path, it seems to me, and, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a natural gas and LNG person, because quite frankly, I don't really have a dog in the fight. I mean, I gravitated towards LNG, but I don't work for an energy company. So it doesn't really matter much to me what we use. I just as a consumer want to be sure I can turn on my lights. And just the other day, I lost power and um, it was, you know, discombobulating. <laughs> and I never want that to happen again. So I just want to be sure my power comes on. And I, I sort of assume that's how most consumers feel. It's, you know, they want the reliability, but they also want affordability. And so to me, I guess I, I sort of feel like we're going we're gonna to have natural gas and LNG for decades to come. Because I just don't see any way we won't. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at, you know, natural gas, to me, if you're dealing with a big problem, you got to deal with the biggest pieces first. <laughs> and the, when I look at the, you know, where carbon emissions are coming from, it's coal for power generation and oil in transportation. So if you want to deal with those two things, you need to get coal out of power generation. And then you need to expand your power grid so that you can start to use electric cars, use electric vehicles, and take oil to some extent, out of the transportation system that you can. So natural gas is going to have a role in both of those. Natural gas is a great complement to renewable fuels. One thing that you know people who aren't in the industry might not realize is that you know lots of sources of energy, they don't like to be turned off and on. <laughs> you know, if you have a coal plant, you just need to run it. If you turn it off, it doesn't want to restart. Oil refineries are the same way. People have some experience of that because, you know, if a refinery gets shut down for a hurricane, it often takes quite some time to get it started up. You know, natural gas is a bit of an exception to that rule when it comes to power generation. You know, you can turn the turbine on when you need it. You can turn it off when you don't. And so that's a great complement for solar, for wind, for other renewable sources of energy that you might want to have as a bigger and bigger part of your power generation as you're trying to displace coal and increase the size of your grid so that you can start to replace some of the oil use 
in transportation. So it's very difficult to see how there isn't a role for natural gas, given that it's the cleanest of the fossil fuels and it has it is such a complement to solar and wind and the other renewables that we want to move to as we need to increase the size of the power grid. So if you want to be reliable, affordable, and environmentally responsible, it's hard to see how natural gas isn't a part of that mix, at least for the foreseeable future. And, you know, I like commodity markets. Don't necessarily, you know, if something else evolved other than natural gas, I that would be interesting too. But, you know, if you're looking ahead and saying, hmm, what's the most likely path to play out? I think you got to say natural gas is going to be part of the solution more than it's part of the problem. I agree. And I think the, the Morgan Stanley report really made that clear that natural gas and LNG are, are remain the fastest growing fossil fuels. Uh, there's other things that are going to come along and those are great. I mentioned to Dan Jurgen his Sierra Week because I love the technology. I love learning about new technology. So it's not to say that new technologies won't be developed or that renewables won't continue to grow. All of that will. But let's not forget we have this pretty good energy source already. And, uh, you know, I think everyone, especially the folks at Morgan Stanley, think, you know, we're going to have natural gas and LNG in the supply mix for decades. You know, it's one of those things of let's never stop looking to improve. But, you know, I think there's being pragmatic, being practical, using what we have, understanding that energy needs to be affordable and reliable, and it needs to be getting progressively lower carbon so we can deal with both the problems we're facing. And let's just find out a way to get the technology motivated, get the investment capital flowing. Big part of that is having smarter markets that can help push that capital to the right places uh, and let those investment dollars flow. And then we'll all get to see how things evolve. And hopefully, you know, this will be another crisis that we can look back on and say, wow, I, I didn't think we'd get through that one. But, you know, we did. Like we may have said about some of the others in the past. Right, right. Somehow the world always gets beyond the crisis and uh, whatever the crisis is, whether it's energy, whether it's COVID, and on the other end, there's hopefully something better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like we, we've got big problems, but we've also got a lot of ingenuity that we can tap into. When you let the market run, it generally does. Right. And you get the right, you know, the right price signals to the right people. It's amazing what can be accomplished. Exactly. And I mean, we saw that with shale gas. So I think we're, you know, we're sort of in a, a weird moment in time, I think, where I'm not sure that those signals are being sent. But what I'm now sensing, um, in part because we, we, it is so much in the news, the energy prices, the energy crisis, the supply chain issues, I'm starting to get more of a sense of urgency from policymakers and also from industry to let's work out some of these, these bottlenecks. And I'm wondering if that's your view you know, as an economist and also in your discussions with, with a lot of folks. Well, I think you definitely have heard the, you know, the temperature increase, and I'm sure there are a few things politicians like to hear less than people who are paying too much to drive their car and heat their home. So I think you need to, you know, the the politics has to be responsible to the needs of the constituents. So you'll see that push. And my fear is that, you know, what we'll see is a lot of tacking back and forth and not have the long-term thinking that we need to kind of pilot our way through this. Like when 
energy prices are low? Or are we going to say, we need to stop all that fossil fuel and just focus on the climate? And then when the prices go up, we're going to say, well, we can't think about the climate today because energy prices are too high. Um, so that's what I worry about is that we just kind of swing from one extreme to the other rather than being able to kind of look down the road and say, look, this is where we need to be. And how are we going to navigate that transition in the least painful way possible and look out for the people that are going to be most vulnerable as that transition takes place. And I think part of that is, you know, both sides of the debate acknowledging that the other side has a valid point. <laughs> you know, like getting beyond the the mockery and the vilification to say, look, we've all got a, a stake in this. We've all got something that we can add and try to move forward. So, you know, I think what it's going to take is a whole lot of investment in infrastructure. You know, if you think about what we're trying to do, I think, you know, Daniel Jurgen talked about, you know, we're not adding infrastructure, we're replacing infrastructure. And that is a big different thing. I mean, if you think about some of the the big projects, you know, that like the monumental projects that stick in people's minds, like the Marshall Plan for Europe or putting a man on the moon, you know, those are small compared to what's being contemplated here. Like if you're really going to switch over an energy system that took hundreds of years to build and replace it, like that's a that's a big undertaking. And so it requires, you know, a level of seriousness that you would have taken to the Marshall Plan or the moonshot and then some. So what I hope is that you start to get a little bit of that longer term focus and then you know thinking through what's going to get us there and not just blowing in the political winds between the extreme of you know we need to get rid of all fossil fuel versus we need to bring back all the fossil fuels because winter's coming. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week. Music